Hello humans, welcome to The Conversation. I'm your host, Dan Evans. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here and we've got two great guests on The Conversation. Mark Thompson will be here hosting to join a little bit later. But like I said, we've got two great guests. Later we'll be talking to someone who works in academia and will help us look at gun reform in a totally different way. But first, you know it's The Conversation, so we're gonna talk to some progressive candidates and we've got an interesting one for you. Joining us now from New York's 15th Congressional District is Tomas Ramos. Tomas, welcome to the damage, and welcome to the conversation. Thank you for having me. Such a pleasure. Thank you. So, um, first off, I wanted to kind of get into your background a little bit. You are a first generation like American from Dominican Republic, I believe. Correct. Yes, uh, my parents uh, migrated uh, in, in the early '80s for a better future, for better opportunity. Uh, so, I've been born and raised in New York City. Uh, moved around a lot as a as a as a young person uh, because of my father's incarceration and my mother being a single mom raising four children on her own and she just wanted us to have the best opportunity uh, to prosper and and she moved us to a upper middle class community in the suburbs of Philadelphia so we can get a good education and then we moved to Dominican Republic upon my father's release where he was deported. Right, I mean that's just kind of the. Not quite the American dream, but it's like the prototypical American story. Like you come here um, kind of on your bootstraps, kind of build up on your own. But I want to touch, if we could, really fast, if that's okay with you, with um, your father's incarceration. Because in your campaign video, you talk about how um, your father was getting into the drug game kind of just to supply for your family because you were um, um, immigrants, you were kind of up and coming trying to figure that out. But he was arrested and that had an impact on kind of a bit of your political beliefs to this day. Could you speak to that? Yeah, you know, so the American dream is you, you, you move to America, you work hard, uh, you open up your own business and, and you make it. Uh, our family moved to Washington Heights, New York at a time where education was was low, crime was high, and he needed to provide for a family of four. Uh, so he did resolve to, to, to the streets and it caught up to him. And the FBI came knocking on my door when I was one years old and, and dragged him out and put it you know, in handcuffs. And he, he paid the price for it. The, the one thing that a lot of people don't understand is, you know, he, my mom, he left uh, entire family uh, by by themselves. So when we talk when I talk about the cycle of poverty, when I talk about generational poverty and mass incarceration, how it's disrupt uh, our communities, low income communities of color, there's no support system for our single mothers, uh, and I'm the prime example of that. I am an outlier. I was able to come out uh, out of poverty. I was able to go on to college and you know provide for myself. But a lot that's not the case for a lot of children and young people that are in my community today. And that's why I chose instead of going to Wall Street, I chose to come back to my community to bridge a gap of poverty to prosperity through educational structures. Yeah, um, when you're talking about having the opportunity to go to Wall Street, that's a big kind of step because a lot of um, folks of color, they get to college as you did. I believe you went to Temple University and they get there and they kind of have this sort of crossroads where do I kind of advance myself so I can at least, I think, um, maybe kind of speaking personally, but you wanna kind of see if you can make better for the future, for future generations. Or do you go back to your community and decide to use the skills and things you learned from um, like university and college, try to better that community. Was that a similar kind of dichotomy you fought with while you were kind of deciding what to do after college and what you wanted to do with like the skills you learned? 
Yeah, as a first generation uh, person going into college, my mom was extremely proud and all she ever wanted was for us to provide for herself, have a good job. But the problem was for me, I had I had values. You know, I 2008 when the economic crisis hit, I was a junior at Temple University learning my core capstone courses in finance. And I learned how big banks have been profiting from our low income communities. And once a bailout, bailout happened and how CEOs took big paychecks and bonuses, I didn't want anything to do with it. So instead, I did travel the world. I always talk about semester at sea because I changed my, my whole perspective of thinking about life. And I came back and I just wanted to work in my community. I wanted to I dedicate the rest of my life to make sure that the cycle does not repeat itself. And I and that's what I'm doing today. You know, a lot of children do not have the opportunity to get out of poverty because of systemic racism. And I'm very well aware of it because I lived it. Yeah, and it's definitely good to have um, candidates who can kind of speak to having those experiences and they can talk to about what we can actually do once elected to change those experiences. And now that we've kind of um, stuck a little bit on your story, I just find it very interesting and different. I think that your story brings an important perspective and a lot on your plate when you're running. But I do wanna talk about kind of your campaign, your policies. So let's um, kind of lay out for the audience, what are your like sort of stances? What do you wanna do when you're in Congress? Um, how do you feel about like Medicare for all, for example? Send me some of your other policy fronts. Yeah, I'm, I am running on a very progressive platform, the Green New Deal. It needs to be passed today. Uh, when I talk about education, we won't even have an educational platform if we don't have a, a you know a, a world to live in. So the Green New Deal is something that I'm a huge, huge advocate for. Medicare for all is a necessity. That's it, there's a it, there's no argument about it. It needs to get passed. Uh, the criminal justice system for me is one of my main uh, issues. Uh, because, like I said, I lived it, and I was, and I was uh, a victim of the vicious cycle itself. So the school to prison pipeline. I am the candidate that's going to alleviate the school to prison pipeline. Congresswoman uh, Presley has uh, put out an amazing plan. I want to support her in, in in that act that she implemented. But I also have my own uh, ideas when it comes to our criminal justice system. When we talk about systemic racism, we talk about somebody that has been formerly incarcerated coming out and trying to find a job, trying to get housing, trying to get their uh, back on their feet. But the system is set up so recidivism is inevitable. And they result back to getting on the streets because they cannot get a job because of the criminal history record. They cannot get public housing because they have a, a, a felony conviction. They cannot get Pell Grants so they can't go back to college. That's systemic racism. And one of the acts that I'm going to bring to the table is a Federal Fair Chance Act, where it requires that any employer gives a fair chance for anybody to get an interview with their employer. They cannot run a background check until they're given a conditional offer. And then once the conditional offer is given, then they can run a background check. And then they can assess that the crime that happened is directly correlate with the work. That's something that I'm that I'm gonna be implementing my first day when I'm in Congress. God, that's that's so important because we like to say in society, we in society like to say, um, you know, once you're incarcerated, you get a chance at another, you get a second chance, right? But too often in society, when you go to apply for a job, you go to apply for any benefits, one of the first things that come up is a little box that says, were you at any point incarcerated or vict um, accused of committing a felony or something like that? And so it creates this barrier for people that they can't actually um, make an actual difference in their lives. So it's so good to hear, and it's so important really, to hear a candidate say, I'm gonna make that my first priority in office. Um, I wanna get really quickly, 
to discuss what it's like when you're canvassing, because I think there's a really big disconnect between how the media sees um, individual constituents and what experience you actually get when you start knocking on doors. So what has it been like when you've been knocking on doors of the constituents in New York's 15th district? What do they have to say? What are their kind of political priorities? So if, if people do not know, this is the poorest out of the 435 congressional district. This is the poorest congressional district, wow. but we have so much culture. We have so much artistry, so, so, so many brilliant people. They have been disenfranchised for so long. So when I knock on the door, the first thing they say is we have a candidate knocking on a door. They can't even believe it. So they're excited just that somebody cares about them. We have the lowest voter turnout. Less than 5% of the people vote in the primaries. So we have the lowest voter turnout and me engaging at their doors, it is priceless. They're excited. They're excited to hear from somebody, a community leader, an educator, somebody that cares about them and that's not a career politician. And for me, I'm getting amazing feedback just because they see me as a young, energetic, somebody has a new vision, new ideas. And they're excited for my campaign. I've been knocking on doors since August. I've already hit over 10,000 doors. You know, this is how I'm going to win this race. When we talk about grassroots, I'm going to building to building. I'm registering people to vote at their doors. People that have never voted before, people that don't even know what Congress is. I'm educating them at the doors. Uh, there's a lot of events, community events that are that are occur, that occur in our district, but it's the same people going. I'm expanding the electorate. I'm getting people that have never been excited about politics getting excited. This is Cardi B's district, by the way, as well. Uh, we need to get Cardi B involved because she's already helping our man Bernie, and this is her district, and Cardi B can. She can mobilize a demographic that has never been engaged before. So that's the that's the that's the that's the demographic that I'm that I'm after. People that are, are unengaged, uninspired, and that really don't care because they've been disenfranchised and have not had a voice for so long. Yeah, it's great that you mentioned Cardi B there because I think recently she talked about wanting to kind of go back to school and get involved in the political process. So I think it'd be awesome one day if she can join you in Congress to tell you, like, to work with you to pass these sort of bills. But that's really good to hear. Um, really fast because we're running out of time right now. You are running an interesting campaign because you're not one of the only people knocking on those doors. You're one of, I believe, 12 people knocking on those doors. There's the incumbent in the race has decided they're, they're not going to seek another term. So it's a wide open field. There are Republicans running, but there's like 12 Democrats running. Um, how does that feel to you being in a crowded campaign? And what do you think differentiates you from those other candidates that are there? So there's 12 candidates, but there's only one Tomas Ramos. Let me be clear about that. And you can find me at tomasforcongress.com. But the difference between myself is I never came into this to be a politician. And once I'm elected, I won't be a politician. I'll be an elected official, I'll be a public servant. The majority of the people that are running are career politicians that have failed us. This district has been represented by a career politician. And for us to get to a place where we're not impoverished and disenfranchised, we need one of us. We need someone that has lived these realities, someone that has dedicated their life to making sure that every child is born in that born into prosperity and opportunity for upward mobility. What makes me different than everybody else is that the criminal justice system has not only affected my father, but has affected myself as well. I know I normally don't talk about my 40 days that I spent in Rikers Island when I was when I was wrongly incarcerated. So it took an effect on myself. And that's what's going on in our community. The policing is, is disproportionately incarcerating more of our community day to day. And we need to 
break the school to prison pipeline and I am that candidate. I will break and make sure that our school to prison pipeline does not affect our children. Make sure that our families get the support system that's needed. And when I talk about poverty, I'm talking about generational poverty. This is a 70, a district that's 70% Hispanic. Uh, mostly Spanish speaking. Yo hablo el español bastante bien. Hay mucho dominicano aquí también. So cuando nosotros vamos a progresar, vamos a hacerlo junto. And that's what I'm going to bring to the table. I think that kind of from the ground up sort of environment. And also, I like hearing that other candidates or people who are running for office who are not career politicians, because the career politicians have not been showing up for people, have not been showing up for our communities. So it's really good to see that you're running. Again, the website is tomasforcongress.com. If you want to donate or learn more or volunteer even, this is gonna be one with ground support. So Tomas Ramos, thank you very much for joining on the conversation best of luck with your race. Thank you so much for having me, such a pleasure. Absolutely, Uh, thank you for that interview. Coming up next will be Mark Thompson with another excellent interview talking about gun reform. This has been Dan Evans, your broke host, and we'll be right back. Welcome back to the conversation, Mark Thompson here in receipt of the bat signal. I came in, scooted into the chair for Jenk, so it's great to have you here. Wow, what an interesting guy we have right now. Jonathan Metzl is a researcher, he's an author, he's a doctor. He's professor and director of Center, the Center for Medicine, Health, and Society at Vanderbilt University. And is the author of Dying of Whiteness. Jonathan Metzl, welcome. Thanks so much, it's great to be here. Uh, you know, I wanna get to the gun thing. I know they brought me here to talk to you about guns, and I do wanna talk <laughs> about guns, but your book, has a lot of stuff related to this issue that's also tied up with a lot of things I think that represent what America is going through right now, and maybe it's been going through for a long time, and that's uh, political identity or personal identity as reflected in politics. No, that's exactly right. I mean, in the book, basically, I talk about the negative health effects of politics and policies that claim on their face to make white America great again. And what really what I show in the book is that those policies are as dangerous for um, all, all working class people, including working class white supporters, as are asbestos or not wearing seatbelts in cars or um, secondhand smoke. They literally become health risks. And so part of the book is kind of telling the story of how things like pro-gun, anti-government, anti-healthcare kind of politics became these mainstream politics. But really, they're so they're so dangerous for everybody, including the people that you know are they're claiming to help. Yeah, in fact, you make the point in the book that people are willing to, they'd rather die than give up their political identity. Well, it's really, the point is about how issues that seem to be kind of counterintuitive from a health standpoint. I mean, why would somebody reject their own health care? And so in the book, I I interview people in Tennessee, for example, who are very, very medically ill. But this, this sense of white identity, this idea that undeserving immigrants and minorities are going to come and take away resources that are due to them, really blocks their 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 understanding of how something like the Affordable Care Act would benefit. Benefit them, and so I really did talk to people on de- literally on death's doorstep, and they and 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 it's not like a slam on them. It was it was really um, look at how deeply this this idea, this this pathological notion of what it means to be white, has become that you're not only 
blocking things that you think are going to be beneficial for other people, but they're actually shortening your own lifespan. Really, this, the story of the book is how uh, the politics that that's claim to bolster whiteness end up short, shortening white lifespans. No, that's exactly the point. One of the things I love about what you've done is that you're not banging on that part of society that's suffering at the hands of these policies. Rather, you're kind of treating it as a social and medical phenomenon. And, and with, the, you know, I mean, again, I, I'm from Missouri. I, I live in Tennessee now. It's not like I was going into some alien planet. You know, I have a lot of friends all across the political spectrum. And I really wasn't trying to blame anybody. I was just trying to say, like, look at how, look at how, how boxed in we are. Um, by what Du Bois once called the the wage of whiteness, um, that in a way we've created these systems that are just bringing bringing us all down. The part of the book is about healthcare. Another part is about um, cuts to the education system and talking about people who were so afraid that other kinds of people were going to come into the education system that they were willing to support budget cuts that impacted their own kids' schools. And everybody everybody suffered, uh, that was in Kansas. And then a good part of the book is about guns and how this idea that basically guns that come to symbolize these powerful symbols of white identity um, end up having profound effects across society. But the biggest, you know, the, the main death in, in the gun research I did uh, shows that the, the people who die the most are, are white men from gun suicide. And so it's this kind of double-edged sword of the symbol of patriotism or power or privilege that ends up also being the, the profound, profound health risk. Again, the book is Dying of Whiteness and uh, Jonathan Metzl, now let's talk about guns a little bit more because you've mentioned it and, and that is so much a part of it, that it seems as though identity, uh, machismo, uh, displaced um, insecurity or uh, concerns or anxiety about virility and these other things, that's all wrapped up in, in guns, the size of the guns, how many guns people have, et cetera. Well, you know, that, that's certainly on everybody's mind because we just saw a march in Virginia where people were walking around with like, you know, five foot guns and, you know, rocket launchers and pretty much everything. And so, you know, I think it's important to note that the, you know, the, the question is, you know, that, that was 20,000 people in Virginia. That doesn't represent everybody who's a gun owner. Everybody who's a gun owner doesn't have a, you know, a racist sign that they're holding up. But I do think that there's this shift that's happened in society. Um, if you go back about 15, 20 years ago, people owned guns for hunting. Uh, according to Pew opinion polls, that was about 70, 75% of gun owners. They had a family history of, you know, having guns passed down. Uh, they kept the guns just in case of emergency, things like that. And there's been really a radical shift in this country in which over those past 20 years, guns have really become these profound symbols of identity, particularly white identity. Um, and, and, and the reason people have owned guns has shifted from hunting to protecting themselves against other people. You know, if you interview gun owners now, it's kind of like, you know, a carjacker, a gangbanger, stuff like that, um, according to some of the research that, that I've done. And so really this idea of what guns symbolize in this country has shifted alongside just a, a massive proliferation of many more guns coming in, coming into people's homes and, and into the public. And the ability to research and discuss this has changed as well. I mean, the, the Dickey Amendment is something that, uh, explain to everyone how that's changed the nature of research being done about this. Yeah, it's pretty remarkable. I talk about this a lot in the book that basically uh, in the mid 1990s, there were two pretty important research studies that came out that were published in mainstream medical journals that basically said, um, 
owning a gun and having a gun in your home increases the risk of having a, a shooting in your home, usually a domestic shooting. Um, and it would be hard to have a shooting in your home if, if there was no gun. So it seemed like a kind of self-evident kind of claim. There's another study um, that showed that having a gun in the home increased the risk of having a gun suicide in the home. So these were pretty non-controversial kinds of kinds of claims. But these were taken up by the NRA at the time and basically said all, all public health research uh, is anti-gun or showing an anti-gun bias. And for the you know since the mid 1990s, there's been effectively a federal ban on gun research. You can't do federally funded, CDC funded, NIH funded kinds of gun research, which really asks the question, you know, how do we keep people safe? And that's changed a little bit recently with Congress, uh, uh, you know, a couple of months ago. Um, but basically, for the past 30 years, we haven't built the kinds of databases that would help us answer the question of how can we have a country that respects the Second Amendment on one hand and stops what we have now, which is an epidemic rate of gun death on the other. There just seems to be such a pitched battle around these gun issues that the, I guess, a polarizing that's become even more extreme, that it, it locks out all of these different treatments. And you discuss uh, the different ways that this gun problem, if you will, the, the problem of people getting shot and killed has been tackled. I mean, you, you talk about uh, the, the social, at a, 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 uh, really attacking it from a health standpoint and attacking it from other standpoints. I wonder if you could speak to those different strategies in, in treating this problem. Sure. Well, again, I think what, what we've gotten in the aftermath of this Dickey Amendment and other things that have happened in society is really such an unfortunate polarization in which you're either pro or anti-gun, there's no middle ground, you're either with those Virginia protesters or you're totally against them and, and what they represent. And so, you know, I, I guess in my research, when I was in, I was in Missouri for um, quite a long time, talking to many gun owners, sitting in on, on groups, people were, um, you know, kind enough to let me talk to them. And, and I really found that there was such a need for a middle ground. In other words, how can somebody be pro-gun or have a history of guns, but also, you know, people ask me, even in the most pro-gun areas, you know, how can we keep our families safe? How can we keep our communities safe? And this issue has become so polarized. And, 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 and it's true for public health also. I mean, public health, in a way, has to research these issues like just really obvious, really obvious things, you know, pro or anti-gun kinds of things. And so really what I argue in, in the work that I do is how can we get back to a center on this issue where a country that has a second amendment and we also have a profound need for, for public safety. And so in the work I do, I, I say that in order for research to re-enter that space, we can't just say, here's a policy that's going to work and we're going to, you know, make you do it. It's also to talk to people about what do, what do guns mean? How can we break down polarization? How can we create some kind of middle ground? And hopefully that's where we're going to get to. Although, you know, given the images on television the other day, you know, it seems like it seems like it's so far away. But I, I would hope that that's where, where we're headed. Well, it's funny. I was going to ask you if you really noticed sort of a softening of positions on this issue, if you seem to find some engagement in your research. Well, it's, it's frustrating for me because when I talk to people one on one, you know, people say, yeah, you know, I'm. Um, you know, I mean, and again, it's probably a bias because people who want to talk to me <laughs> will talk to me, right? And people who don't are probably, you know, they, they don't appear in my book. Um, but but I will say that, you know, that a lot of times I would I would talk to people who were, as I was saying, they would come talk to me in camouflage with AR-15s and they would also say, by the way, what's the best way to 
you know, have a gun lock uh, or a gun safe in my house or have the gun so my kids can't, can't, um, can't access them. Uh, and so I do think there, there really is this need to figure out, um, you know, just common sense, public safety kinds of stuff. Um, and the problem is anytime any kind of controversy, I'm sorry, anytime any kind of middle ground position, like a red flag law, for, for example, is introduced. I mean, think about a red flag law. A red flag law is in a way, a, com- a compromise position. It's a 30-day restriction on gun ownership usually, but it doesn't take away anybody's Second Amendment rights. Anytime there is some kind of contra- uh, some kind of compromise, um, it just gets swept up in this polarizing debate, and all of a sudden, everybody's for or against for or against it. So again, it's a frustration between my life when I talk to people about uh, about this on all sides, and and the kinds of things that happen in politics and on Twitter, where you these issues just seem hopeless and and so polarized. I, I know we're out of time, so but I, but you'll forgive me. Having said that, I'm going to ask a question that you're going to need time to answer, but I'm going to ask it anyway. And that is, your book is called Dying of Whiteness, the racial component to gun ownership. Can you speak to it just quickly for a moment? A 200-year history in this country of, of um, basically white Americans having the right and privilege to uh, own weapons. That goes back to before the Civil War, colonial times. Uh, guns were basically symbols of white privilege in public that would suppress, um, you know, slave revolts or slaves running away or during the Klan, the night rides and things like that. There's a long history of really this question of who gets to carry a gun in public and that's a privilege afforded to white Americans. Um, And African-Americans like Malcolm X or Robert Williams, who tried to say the Second Amendment applies to me also, were, you know, harassed or shot or tackled or things like that. And so, you know, really this question of who gets to parade around like those men did in, in Virginia their day, there's a his, there's a history to that. And I just, it's important to note that if other kinds of people would have had a rally like that, they wouldn't have had the same reception. Here, here, Jonathan Metzl, what a great conversation. I'd love to continue it on my podcast. Can I book him for my podcast? Uh, all right, we're gonna try to get that going. Uh, again, hear. the book is, Dying of Whiteness, Jonathan Metzl, great work, and I look forward to our next conversation. Thank you. Really my honor, thanks so much. All right, Uh, that's all the time we have. Thanks for joining us. Uh, The podcast, which I mentioned, should have a new episode up this weekend. It's called The Edge with Mark Thompson, where we talk about politics and other stuff. But anyway, regardless, it's always a pleasure to visit with you here and to speak to all these cool people on the conversation. And until next time, bye-bye.